namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami So this is the last part of the talk called The Shining Through of the Divine. So it's from the uh, Ajahn Sumato Anthology of uh, Teachings, uh, volume number three. And this book is uh, the the way it is, and these are talks from uh, the winter retreat of uh, 1988. And so this will be the last reading today of this winter retreat. So um, there's not a lot uh, left of this talk, but uh, probably enough time, enough, <laughs> enough to fill up our time together with. So we had already looked at the um, first three Brahmaviharas, Metakaruna Mudita, and then the last part is on Upeka. Then Upeka, equanimity, serenity. To be able to abide in serenity of the mind we're not going around looking for beautiful things to find delight in, because there's no self. You respond to beauty with joy, but it's not something that you look for or seek as a person anymore. So the ordinariness of life is upeka, is serenity. It's about having peacefulness with the pains and aches of the aging process and separation from the loved. All this is the realization of upeka, of serenity. Upeka doesn't mean indifference. Sometimes it's translated as indifference, quote-unquote, but it actually means serenity when things are ugly, unpleasant, or ordinary. If you follow the asuba practices, noticing, paying attention to the unbeautiful, the not beautiful, you begin to create upeka, or equanimity, serenity. There was a hospital in Bangkok which received all the murder victims and violent deaths, corpses found in the canals and things like that. If you went in on a Monday, they would have a collection from the weekend, a variety of gruesome, macabre objects that would first give you a strong feeling of revulsion. You'd go in and say, yuck, let me out of here. Because we don't generally like to look at human bodies that have been butchered and mangled and are in a state of decay. Such things are what civilized society always keeps away from. We have institutions to take care of them, so they never have to meet our attention. But if one meditates on these things, the result is actually equanimity or serenity. If you get over the initial aversion, horror and negativity towards a rotting human corpse or a human corpse that's been cut up in an autopsy, the result is equanimity, a tremendous peacefulness and serenity. Not depression, not aversion. When there's no self one can abide in a state of serenity. If there's self, then we say, I hate it, I don't like it, take it away, I can't stand it, I can't bear this, it's foul, it's disgusting. But when there's equanimity, actually, there's no self. So one is not making problems about the process of living and the way things move and change and go from beauty to decay. With mudita, you find joy in the beauty, and when the beauty fades, there's equanimity rather than sorrow. So once again, Lumpur is using the word serenity over and over as a translation for upeka, which um, I, uh, is a, uh, a word in English that gives a greater quality of, of uh, brightness or, or sanctity, um, spaciousness, equanimity, um, uh, or indifference. Uh, sometimes it is translated that way. And sometimes, uh, it, to, uh, to be accurate, in the, in the teachings, the word upeka is deliberately used to mean indifference, like a not caring, like the, the sort of um, uh, you know, a very unskillful attitude. But uh, it's a, a minority of, of times that it's used in that way, as far as I, I'm aware. And generally it's referring to this great brightness, um, this spacious serenity of the heart, this uh, ability to be untroubled or, or unshaken by the agitations of the world. 
So this um, uh, description of the visiting the uh, the autopsies in the police hospital in in Bangkok that's something that uh, the Sangha members would uh, regularly do. I went there once or twice, and you know, we would go on, go on a Monday morning. And the um, because the, the is a Buddhist country in the main part, and they're familiar with the um, practice of uh, a supakamatana, the uh, reflection on the the not beautiful or the patikula sanyada the sort of disgusting or, or um, unattractive, loathsome nature of, of the, the body, then um, the, the hospital is quite open, supportive of monastics coming to, to be present at those autopsies. And so um, they would be, uh, because uh, over the weekend the, the, the doctors wouldn't be there until Monday morning, so that's why it was, it was the uh, bodies would accumulate over the weekend uh, for, from various accidents or, or, uh, or being found and then there would be generally be a larger number that they were dealing with on, on a Monday. So uh, uh, it's a very good opportunity. Um, many people of us, particularly in the West, have uh, never see a dead body. Uh, or even if we, we do, it might be at a funeral where the body's been put in a nice set of clothes and, and um, made up to look as though they're, they're, um, they're just sleeping. Or uh, as Ajahn Sajito um, Memorably put it, he said, when, even when you're in a coffin, they dress you up like you're on your, you're on your way to a party. <laughs> so, uh, that, uh, uh, so many of us uh, um, never see a dead body. Uh, and uh, so that side of life is something that is, is kept away from us uh, in, in the main part. And some cultures in the West, they, they have a tradition of having a wake and the body is, is there in an open coffin in the middle of a group of people, but in many countries, uh, bodies are whisked away and, and, you, and don't even have funerals nowadays. You have a, a celebration of life uh, rather than a funeral. And, um, that, uh, and, and you know, local uh, uh, conventions or systems, um, they, they, can, uh, they can vary uh, uh, a lot. And some, some places, you're not actually allowed to be there when they put the body into the, the, the coffin in the ground and start putting earth onto the coffin because the, the earth hitting the coffin is, is uh, taken to be something that's traumatic. And so that well, I remember one Sangha member who went to a, a funeral and um, she was a very forthright person. And she said, I want to be there when they, I, I, want, I want to stay here until the, they, they put the earth on the coffin. And the, the, the um, funeral director said, we can't put any earth in until you go, madam. So no, I'm not going. Well, we're not putting anything in the. We're not putting any earth in until you go. That's that's the law. And so she was astonished. But that in that particular area, then it was um, uh, uh, the the public had to be away. Even the, just the sound of the earth hitting the coffin was taken to be something that was sort of uh, invasive or intrusive or unbearable. So uh, one of the interesting things I, I've shared a, a few times in the past when I went to the. Um, uh, the the autopsies uh, the police hospital Siri uh, uh, Hospital I think it's called in Bangkok um, it was kind of, it was interesting to me because uh, I mean I did a, a university degree in physiology so I'd been around um, uh, dead human body parts in the past I, I hadn't actually been in a, a whole sort of anatomic anatomical um, uh, say um, uh, dissection. But uh, I'd certainly been around, uh, had human brains and such like that we've worked on. But um, one of the really interesting things to me that was being in that and being around, because one of the things that, that you don't get from hearing the words or, or thinking of the ideas is the smell. And uh, most, uh, most animals have a particularly uh, instinctual negative reaction to the smell of their own dead. So that your own, spe for some reason, your own species has a particular smell. So I think it's a, a very basic um, instinctual protection of like one of your team didn't make it. Get out! It's dangerous here. Go now. So that so that say a, a dead human would always smell worse or have a have an in, in, intrinsically more repellent smell than say a you know, dead cat or a horse or something of that nature. So that your own species is particularly shocking on a uh, kind of non-rational level, on a very instinctual, powerful level. So the smell of, of a dead body is particularly impactful and you, you can't really prepare 
for that. Um, but uh, again, it is a, a, a meditation exercise and, um, and, and very uh, challenging, but also illuminating. And the, if you, as Lumpur is saying here, if you really give yourself to it and you just pay attention, the result of it is a great peacefulness, as a, as a kind of calm that, uh, that uh, is there after the, the, the sense of going through the, the wave of, of revulsion or sort of instinctual reaction of, like, oh, I don't want to be here. Um, often, if that's passed through, um, then there's a, a great peacefulness, a sense of uh, inner quietness. Some, for some people, it's, it's um, the, you know, the instinctual reactions are just too strong. I remember Ajahn Chandako wrote a, a, um, a, 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 as either a Dhamma talk he gave, where he wrote an article about going to these uh, autopsies and um, how. Um, yeah, and he's a sort of um, you know, very strong-minded and, and independent, um, skilled, experienced practitioner and thought you know, that, that uh, he was sort of ready for this kind of a practice and, uh, it, uh, and that he wouldn't be that challenged by it. But he said it wasn't, it wasn't even, uh, if I remember correctly what he, what he wrote, he said it wasn't even revulsion, it was just something in him just shut down and said no. And he could feel his consciousness just contracting, just kind of turned to a single point and then just switched off and he, he, he fainted. He just said, something said, no, no, not acceptable. I mean, not even in those words, but just, just literally the whole system closing down and he blacked out. Um, and so that, it, which is again, I feel is instructive and, and, and helpful to see, yeah, this is, it's not just something that the, the thinking mind can, can work with or override, but you're, you know, we're working with very powerful um, natural forces of the mind. And the Buddha encouraged this kind of practice in order to get to know these, these things, like with, with attraction to others and, and um, you know, aversion, and to, to get to know the whole field of experience uh, of, that, uh, that is part of our, our, uh, the living system that, that we embody. And um, by drawing close to to that and using these kind of situations, it's it can be very instructive, very illuminating and, and liberating. One of the things that I've often shared about this that was surprising to me was that it was uh, the one of the things that really hit me uh, more than just sort of the bodies being cut up or the sort of skin being peeled off or organs being taken out and weighed and such like was. That uh, it was the kind of tiny details, because the the the, uh, the the bodies were mostly just sort of as they had arrived, so they were still um, sort of wearing the clothes that they the, that they had when they had an accident or whatever, uh, they had the illness that they died of or whatever. Mostly it was accidents or um, um, or uh, bodies that were fi- uh, fished out of the of the canal, but. Um, that uh, were there, and what really struck me was that when you you looked at uh, the body lying there on the slab, that uh, because most of them were sudden deaths from a, from a, a trauma or accident uh, of some kind, was that really the powerful anicca sanya of you know when when that when that lad put that t-shirt on that that morning, he didn't know that was the last time he'd ever put a shirt on. When when that woman painted her fingernails. She didn't know that was the last time she'd ever paint her nails before she, you know. And you could, you know, they they gave us a bit of a story. Oh, you know, this person, you know, fell off the back of a motorbike, or this fellow was working on a construction site and he got hit by a piece of rebar on the head and so on. And that was, in a way, that was something that touched me uh, as much, if not more, than than the actual sort of construction of the body. That sense of, of you know, you don't know when it's going to be your last moment, and when you when you uh, uh, paint your nails, or you put that shirt on, or you, uh, or you uh, buckle that belt, that that might be the last time you ever do that. And it, it was interesting. It was not something I was expecting at all. But that, um, that basically, the quality of uncertainty of uh, that you know, life can just blink out in a in a finger snap, and. Uh, and so that it encourages us to be really attentive to what we're doing with each moment and also not taking things for granted that this very act that, uh, that we're a part of now, this very 
act that we're performing now, this can be your last moment in the in the human world, right right now, just even before I get to the end of the chapter. You know, <laughs> it just it can go, and so that was uh, it. Really struck me, yeah, and, and uh, stayed stayed with me uh, that that um, that kind of casualness, which we just go about our everyday activities. Um, putting on our, our sandals. Yeah, where did I leave my hat? Uh, uh, what? Yeah, <laughs> got to get the got to get to to the sala. It's nearly time for the meal. Just, yeah, in that feeling of always being in the middle of things or on the way to something, or or I'll just do this, or I, I'm, I'm, uh, I've got this and this and this on my to do list, and it's like really. <laughs> so that I found that that the the perception of that um, uh, say those encounters in the uh, in the pathology lab, in with the autopsies, it really s- it strengthened that for me. Eh, really, ever since that uh, that sense of don't be complacent, don't don't take it for granted. You, you know, yes, you think you're on the way to somewhere, but don't take it for granted that you'll get there, or that, uh, that this event will happen, or that conversation will take place, or this uh, this work will get done, and that um, that there's a both a challenge and a refreshing quality in that. So uh, unfortunately, in the West, going to autopsies is not something that's doable. We've uh, uh, it's been looked into a few times, but the um, the rela- relationship of religious figures going going into a, a, a an autopsy for meditation purposes is not something that most medical facilities in the West are at all supportive of. We've been in certain places. You find a a doctor who was like a Sri Lankan or a Thai or a Burmese doctor, and they say, oh, "I can get you in, or I'll, I'll find, you know, I'll, 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 I'll get permission." But then it gets, it, when it's been tried in the past, or people have made those inquiries, it's been difficult for them as well, and, the, and their bosses go, "What? You have Buddhist monks in a pathology lab? Why? That's kind of weird. You know, is it a death cult or what? You know? And so that they uh, don't really have that re- relationship with contemplating death." in the same kind of a way. So uh, it's the sort of thing that uh, if you're in a Buddhist country like Thailand, then it's it's not difficult to arrange. But if you're somewhere in the West, then it's um, it's not uh, not proved doable. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? If you could use the microphone. Just a quick comment. Um, Maybe two or three years ago, Ajahn Chittapala was teaching a um, weekend, creative creative weekend, something like that, in the, in the retreat center. And she got a heart from a uh, pig, I th- pig, I think it was, a heart. And um, I think there was like a suba was part of the weekend or something. And I had a chance, she showed it to me. And I had not really, yeah, wor- worked with animal organs much um, so just touching it and pressing it and getting a sense of the texture. I tend to do a suba meditation, so I found it extremely helpful just to have maybe a few seconds to get a bit of more, more of a felt sense of what this is about, even if it was from an animal. Um, so, yeah, I found it quite helpful. What was the theme for the creative weekend? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pig hearts I have known, or I think just body contemplation. Yeah, yeah, yeah very good, very good. That's a yeah, it's a, a helpful way to approach things. Upeka is actually, oops, there's a typo there. Upeka is actually the ability not to follow aversion or be carried away when you see beautiful things. So we're not just running around trying to rejoice in beauty or trying to feel karuna for every unfortunate creature. We can let ourselves wait when there's nothing much happening. With Upeka, one doesn't have to seek something to be happy about or some cause to fight for or engage in the compulsive activity. That's another great problem for modern humanity. We try to use up our need for restless activity in good causes. We are always uh, involved in activities because there's no upeka. Traditionally, the Brahmaviharas are considered as lokiya dhamma, mundane dhamma, not the transcendent or lokutra dhamma. 
because of the way the mind tends to think, the view arises that they're not worth bothering with. Lokutra Dhamma are the, are the important ones. You don't pay much attention to the Lokya Dhammas. But with mindfulness, uh, you're with the relationship of the Lokya to the Lokutra. So you're paying attention to the, the relationship of the Lokya, the worldly, to the Lokutra, the transcendent. We relate on the Lokya Dhamma level through the Brahma Viharas, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. When there's no self, when there's no ignorance conditioning the mental formations, then there's the way of things, the Lokya Dhammas. But we're not asking Mudita to be a permanent experience. We're not expecting to have a continuous, absolute, eternal experience of rejoicing and joy in our lives because we're not attached to that as a viewpoint. So the Brahma Viharas represent a spontaneous response to the experience of birth and consciousness when there's no self. They're a spontaneous response from selflessness, from anatta, rather than an impulsive reaction from desire. There's a difference between a spontaneous response to wisdom and mindfulness and an impulsive reaction to desire. The difference lies in that, of a self, in that view of a self. In the self-view, one is still grasping, just reacting impulsively with desire to life's impingements and experiences. When there's no more ignorance, there's spontaneity. That's what spontaneity is. There's no self in it. It's just a more and more natural way to respond to beauty, truth and virtue, or to pain and misery, to winter, spring, summer and autumn, to the fortunate beings or the unfortunate ones, and even to the waiting, holding your cup of tea, looking out of the window at the rain. So uh, there's a, a few little points here. Um, the uh, upeka doesn't have to seek something or to be happy about or some cause to fight for. So uh, a few days ago we were talking about the, how the mind, we get a sense of being, a sense of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of liveliness, of life and value and meaning from being engaged with things. It can be something that we're excited about, something that we're irritated by, something that we're frightened of, something we've got an opinion about, something that we're... Um, we are regretting something we're nostalgic for, you know, you name it. We, we, uh, but, uh, as I was saying at that, that part of the reading, it's really not the thing that you're excited about or the thing that you're regretting or the thing that you're angry with or the thing that you're worried about. It's the, it's the meanness, the, the me feeling, the I, me, mine feeling, the ahankara, mamankara, the I making and mind making. That's, that's what it's... I would say is the driving force and the mind picks up something to be angry with something to be excited about something to be, to be worried about something to have a doubt about something to regret something to be nostalgic about it picks it up and inflates it because of the sense of defined being that comes from that and uh, uh, I know that um, uh, sometimes when I, when I talk in that way it, it, people sometimes find uh, that objectionable, they, they don't like that because they, no, 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 this is, this is my, my, my heart was really broken and I can never forgive that person you know, for how they treated me. That's, that's not just a, it's not just a, a memory, Ajahn, it's, there's something more to it. Or that, you no, know, this is a real problem, it's a, I, I really did something wrong, I can't be forgiven for that. Or, or no, this is, uh, this is something that's really upsetting in the way the government does things and we really have to, we, we can't be peaceful, we've got to object, we've got to protest. And, and so it can seem that the particular issue that the mind has latched onto, again, with all due respect to people's experience, um, from my own perspective on life, you can see how it latches onto, the mind latches onto a particular event, pleasant, painful, neutral, personal, public, uh, and says, yes, that's it, that's a big thing. And then uh, uh, the mind buys into that and then it becomes the thing it becomes th this massive part of, of your life and you don't have to look too far around your the society or around your family or the, the uh, people around you uh, to see how that works and even just in, in our own lives as well naturally to see that we, we take something and make a huge issue of it and uh, and then if we don't get a perspective on that, then we're, we're really born into it. I remember my, uh, my father used to write a, um, a, a column, a page for a, a dog magazine called Dog World. 
And um, the, the editor of it was a woman called uh, Farrelith Hamilton. And uh, she, um, so it was a fairly, you know, it's a magazine about dogs. It's not a kind of, uh, a kind of real uh, uh, big seller. And it's not inc incredibly popular. Um, but uh, so they sort of potted along as a little dog magazine. And then, and then um, Farrelith, uh, Feffy Hamilton, that was her nickname, Feffy, she got married to a fellow who had formerly been the editor of the News of the World, which is a sort of major sort of shock horror tabloid uh, newspaper. Um, the, uh, uh, so which had, in its heyday, it would sell about 7 million copies every Sunday. So it was a big... Uh, I don't know if it's still in print, but uh, anyway, this, this fellow... Um, Stafford Summerfield was his name, I believe, if I remember correctly. He, he and Feffy Hamilton got married. And so then, you know, he, was, he wasn't in, in the dog business, but uh, he, uh, he had his influence on the editor. And um, I remember my father telling me how, um, with, with Stafford Summerfield's influence on the, on the magazine, he said it was amazing how... He could, there would just get sort of trickles of news, little events that happened in different parts of the country, some kind of, uh, yeah, a meeting of a local dog club up some, some in the north of Scotland, or, or an argument that happened between people on a committee in Birmingham, or a, a dog show that got cancelled in, in Aberystwyth or whatever, and, and take a little sort of one-line snippet of news. And he said, it's amazing, he can just take one little tiny kind of comment from a committee meeting or, or, or a, 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 a short, very unexciting reference to a particular event. And you know, he would be able to, to make it like a half a page story, a whole sort of banner headlines on the front page of this particular issue. And I remember my dad saying, it's extraordinary. I don't know how he does that. But it's like there's nothing much going on, but he can, he can put it on the front page and make you really interested to, to, to read it. And it's a kind of you know, a whole career in tabloid journalism, uh, and, I, and so I didn't really think of much, much about it at the time. But uh, it, it comes to mind now how that's how, that's how our minds work. We take a little snippet of news, something that happened in our life, a sort of uh, uh, an event that when we were a college student, or some uh, argument with our sister or our brother, or or a. Um, uh, something that you got a, you got a prize for, or or some um, uh, argument you had with an ajahn in a different monastery, or someone that you were really inspired by and and, and uh, thought was um, the you know, most wonderful person, and the mind takes hold of that, and then next thing you know, that one little snippet, uh, one a, a tiny piece of, of news or a small fact, woof, it's a banner headline on the front page, and oh my goodness, look at that. And so, again, I'm not trying to belittle people's experience or, or say, you know, that our particular achievements or crises or, or significant things in our lives are, are totally to be dismissed. But it's, uh, I feel it's really helpful to see how we, uh, uh, we get a sense of being from those kind of contacts. And... Uh, because the attention goes to the thing that's that's regrettable, that's uh, irritating, that's uh, exciting, that is uh, feeling the, the feeling the sense of nostalgia. The attention goes to the object, so it has to turn it right around and, and look back and say, "What's the what's happening on the subject side? What's the feeling of of uh, identity that comes from that?" And I, and, uh, and I've said this over and over again, but it's it doesn't have to be pleasant. We can recreate painful situations again and again and again that we, on, a, on the surface level, we might think, why do I keep doing that? That's so awful. I feel so bad when I do that. Or that's, I, I really want to give that up. And I feel so awful. I feel so, you know, so much regret and self-criticism. And so I, I, really, uh, I really hate my, uh, that, this habit that I have. And, <laughs> but we don't hate it because we keep doing it. And uh, and it's uh, because of uh, again not getting into too much pop psychology, but often it's the the sense of identity that me who's done something wrong, me who's a, a failure, me who's who's uh, hurt somebody's feelings, me who's let somebody down. That even though it's painful, the sense of me that comes from it is is something that is 
profoundly desirable, that sense of I am, the, the meanness. So we often keep recreating painful situations when on the surface level, we say, <laughs> that's ridiculous, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, but we keep recreating it because of the sense of being that comes from that. Does that make sense? Is this, anyone that had that same kind of experience? Say no if you haven't. <laughs> but it, it's, I feel it's, it's uh, getting to know how bhava tanha works, that sense of defined being, and then going to upeka, then that uh, upeka is in a way leading into that uh, an openness to undefined being, to being completely at ease without that sense of I and me and mine being fed or being, uh, being uh, say, fueled in, in, in any way. And uh, as Lungpo puts it here, with Upeka one doesn't have to seek something to be happy about or some cause to fight for or engage in the compulsive activity. That's another great problem for modern humanity. We try to use up our need for restless activity in good causes. We are always involved in activities because there's no Upeka. We want to be doing something not because, I mean, caring for others and wanting to be a useful member of society and being helpful is part of it, but often the need for me to be someone who's doing something is like, oh look, there's an excuse, I can, I can be helpful, yes! And uh, I'm not, uh, again, not belittling good works and, and acting in self, uh, unselfish and kind ways, but um, as, as I've often quoted, there's a, in... Um, C.S. Lewis's um, uh, um, book, the, the Screwtape Letters, which is a, a, a series of letters between a, 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 a demon and his nephew, who's sort of learning the ropes of how to be a, how to be a de- uh, involved in demonic activity down in the world, and this sort of uh, it's called uh, uh, the um, uh, uh, sort of letters of advice between the, these two demons and. Uh, and so, uh, in this, in one of the, the descriptions that, that C.S. Lewis makes, he said uh, uh, she was she was all, uh, describing a particular person. She uh, she was always inclined to be as helpful as she could to others, and the others had about them the look of the hunted. So there's like oh, somebody I can help. I'm, I'm so so kind of identified with doing good works, and that's who I am. That then oh look somebody who can be helped. Yes, you know, <laughs> and that. Uh, the, uh, in that, the the person who is being helped, there isn't actually a, a, an an empathy with that being. It's more like you can play a role in my need to be a helpful person. You're a kind of bit player in my uh, my self um, development or my self <laughs> establishment program. Uh, and uh, you know, a lot of good gets done <laughs> because of people wanting to to be identified as being helpful and good people, so that there's a, there are good outcomes from that. But uh, I feel it's really important to, to look at that sense of compulsiveness, compulsivity, compulsiveness. Um, I, I've, got, I've got to be doing this, I, I should be, I must be, I, I have to. And seeing that what, uh, what drives a lot of that is that sense of defined being, me being this kind of a person who does this kind of thing. And just leaving things alone, letting there be spaciousness, not, uh, as Lumpur puts it, doesn't have to seek for something to be happy about or a cause to fight for. doesn't mean that you don't care or that you're just going numb and switching off. It's not a numbness, but it's, a, it's letting go of that, uh, say, that dis-ease with space, with silence, with, with undefined being. And... Uh, being able to, to be open the heart to that. And again, the upeka, genuine upeka, is a great brightness of heart. So it's not just an emotional flatness, but it's a, a brightness of heart that it is there when we allow ourselves to notice neutral feeling uh, and uh, no thing to do, therefore don't do anything. <laughs> can open the heart to that. Um, and uh, that quality of, uh, of upeka is a, like is an as an entry point I feel and a, a skillful way of developing that um, letting go of bhavatana that desire for defined being uh, in a in an extremely skillful way the the opposite of that is vibhavatana is just that is the sort of numbing switching off wanting to not feel 
But upekā is is not uh, that annihilation or, or switching off or, or not caring. It's a total caring, but without uh, but without that necessitating some kind of compulsive activity and, and engagement. Your your worth or your value or your sense of meaning is not defined uh, by what you're doing. <laughs> Uh, and, and having to fill up the space of your life with some activity, but you can you can not do if that's appropriate, and not engage, not pick things up, uh, and there the there uh, not being any sense of your time is being wasted, or that's of no value or, or of, of no meaning, because that opaka, uh, that equanimity, that that ease of heart is really opening up the the door to the that realization of Dhamma, the kind of here and now uh, perfection of Dhamma. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Anything need to be said? Yes, Anagarika Michael. Thanks, Ajahn. Um, I was wondering about... Um, if we use so an object in the body as a as a meditation object, let's say to develop concentration, um, versus if we use Ajahn Sumedho's um, kind of no, noticing space. Um, Say that again. The, noticing no, noticing space or contemplating oh, noticing space. space. I thought you said nose in space. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting method. <laughs> Well, it's kind of mindfulness of breathing at the nose. Yeah. <laughs> um, Carry on. Sorry. <laughs> if if those those types of contemplations, um, yet um, considering those as one sort of category, and then as a third category, a kind of a broad broad awareness, uh, inclusive awareness that um, Ajahn Smith or yourself. Well, a lot of teachers recommend. Um, if yeah, if if sometimes the the broad awareness isn't necessarily cutting it, you know, it's that fifty percent of the time when the letting go isn't happening. Is is that a good time then to shift over to, to contemplations of particular nature, like concentration or um, contemplating space, that kind of thing? Well, uh, 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 it's. It's important to base our, our practice on the results of, of what we do, and so that uh, yeah, if you're if you're working with the mind in a particular way or using a particular method, then it's a it's a balancing act. You know, like if if you have a particular goal in mind, or you you uh, the last two or three sessions and you use that met that approach that method, then you had a particular result. And you thought, well, that's good. Yeah, I want that result to, to happen again, and then. You have another meditation period, and you go, "Oh, that didn't work. Okay, scrap that." Uh, and then that's uh, you're sort of abandoning that particular vehicle, uh, you know, uh, with uh, just because one one particular sitting didn't pr- produce the results that you like. So, it, uh, so it's probably sensible not to just uh, drop something, some particular approach, just because. You didn't get a, a certain result, but to, to carry it through and to investigate, oh, okay, well, the last three or four times it's, it's gone in a different way, or there's been different results. I wonder, wonder what's the cause of that, or yeah, what, what's, uh, where's that coming from? So you you stick with it for a, a time, see what the results are, and then if you realise, oh, no, this this um, somehow this has changed. I can't really use that in the same way. Um, so things have, have shifted. So let's try something else. Um, so that uh, you're giving it a bit of, of time to work with it and then saying, okay, well, um, that, that was appropriate. Because I mean, well, you know, it's, it's very like the changing of the weather, you know. Okay, it was really cold, and then and so you, whenever you go out, you make sure you've got a hat and make a, you know, a jacket and have your, your socks on because it's going to get cold. And then you have a beautiful uh, warm day like today, and say, oh, my goodness, don't need that jacket anymore. Okay, socks off. Yeah, and uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it's dressing for a, 
a warm, bright spring day. Okay, so then you uh, you adapt what you're wearing according to what the weather's doing. Apparently, snow is forecast for next week. <laughs> someone, someone told me today that uh, it was 21 degrees today. Uh, next Wednesday, it's going to be snow. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, if you just keep a balance of not just changing in you know, a very sort of impulsive way, like, oh, that's not working, let's try this. And so then not following things through. It's good to, 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 to stay with things for a, a time, give, a, give the mind an opportunity to, to be in slightly different moods or slightly different circumstances. See, okay, well, that, that six months ago that really worked well. Last month that seemed to work really well, but something's, something's shifted, something's changed, so let's try a different approach. And then just seeing what the results are. Yeah. So, okay. Well, that's a, that was really difficult. That was that was that was a challenge. That was that wasn't easy to do. But yeah, it feels like it might be beneficial. So let's just stick with this for a time and and, and carry on with that. So as you've heard me say many times, I, I really encourage a, an experimental, uh, investigative kind of approach, um, and that uh, you you know having that kind of active inquiry and just because you decided I want to do this practice or this is a good thing don't assume that that's true don't, don't take it for granted uh, uh, but rather try things out see what the result is and then be guided by that okay so the last part so uh, so uh, Upeka is a more and more natural way to respond to beauty, truth and virtue, or to pain and misery, or to winter, spring, summer and autumn. To the fortunate beings or the unfortunate ones, and even to the waiting, holding your cup of tea, looking out of the window at the rain. This is just a contemplation of what divinity is. If you reflect on the instinctive nature, the earthbound body, its sexual desires, its reproductive abilities, survival, eating, drinking, sleeping, all these basic instinctive necessities, there's nothing bad about them. They're just a way, just the way a form like this survives. It has to reproduce itself. In fact, human beings are becoming too good at re reproducing themselves. It's rather frightening. How many billions is the world population? Six billion and rising on this planet? This was 1988, so in our I think 7.4 billion, I think, is the current number. So that was, uh, that's continuing to increase. How many billions is the world population? Six billion and rising on this planet? And if they were all just animals, just like animals, just operating out of instinct, they would be several billion selfish, undeveloped, neurotic, screwed-up human beings. It's terribly frightening. Or take it to the opposite extreme several billion enlightened human beings. Now, that might not be so bad. Several billion enlightened human beings rather than several billion ignorant, selfish human beings. Several billion human beings who can manifest the divine in their, in their daily lives through metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. That doesn't sound so bad. It sounds rather nice. But several billion human beings manifesting greed, hatred and delusion is a pretty grim picture. Yet we don't have the right to comment on them. This one here, this is what we have. This is what we can work on. Don't worry about the others. This is what you can develop through reflection and through meditation. So Lumpur is uh, very fond of thinking on a grand scale and uh, to have a, a broad view of, uh, of the world and how things work. And um, that... Um, but I think it's also in this it's, it's important, significant, to recognise that uh, the the nature of this this uh, physical system, this living system, the earthbound body, its sexual desires, reproductive abilities, survival, eating, drinking, sleeping, all these basic instinctive necessities. There's nothing bad about them. They're just the way a form like this survives. So uh, that's very very much in, in accord with Lumpur Chah's teaching is not to, not demonizing the um, the functions of the the body and the, the feelings of 
of fear or aggression or, or selfishness, just understanding these as, as part of the natural system, but also recognizing just because something's natural doesn't mean to say that it's useful or, or, or helpful. Like, you know, anger is part of nature, violence is part of nature, but if it's followed, then there's, there's painful and destructive consequences. But uh, the, the, uh, part of the, the, um, the principle of uh, loving-kindness, as we were talking about before, and, and that quality of acceptance is that this is part of the natural order. Just because uh, you don't have to hate it or fear it, or reject it or blame it. Sexual desire, or anger, possessiveness, greed, selfishness, they're all natural, they're all part of the natural order, but and the, uh, so the skill is in not taking them personally, like I'm a terrible person because I'm selfish or I'm angry or I'm you know, lazy, greedy, um, but seeing well, these are part of nature, if, they, if those impulses are followed, then there'll be painful consequences. If the, uh, the other you know, wholesome qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, uh, Serenity, if they are followed, then there'll be beneficial uh, uh, and liberating uh, effects from that. If there's a, uh, the choice is made to act on uh, the basis of kindness, on honesty, on, in, based on simplicity, harmlessness, and so on, then they'll be, those are also natural. They're also part of the natural order. If they are followed, then there'll be uh, peaceful, benevolent, uh, easeful consequences. So that um, the kind of not hating or fearing or demonizing the unwholesome, the unskillful, but recognizing, yeah, these are part of nature, but we don't have to follow them. We don't have to, to hate uh, fear, anger and jealousy and, and greed and so on. We don't have to, to try to just sort of destroy them or, or, or wipe them out, but rather recognizing if they're not taken personally, if they're seen as part of the living system, then uh, there's a, a way that we can recognize that, know that. Yes, this is a, a selfish feeling, a lazy feeling, an angry feeling, a what about me feeling. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's, that's natural enough. But uh, our training and what brings us here to a place like Amravati to, to live according to the precepts and to try and cultivate the, the wholesome qualities and let go of the unwholesome qualities, you know, it's important we see these as part of, of what we are, the fabric of this life that we're, we're born into. Uh, but we can make choices, that moment by moment choice is possible. And that's really the liberating, that's the key to liberation, is the, the fact that the mind can be aware of, uh, of the possibilities uh, of action and attitude. And that which is skillful uh, can be chosen, that which is unskillful can, can be left aside. And that if we see things in terms of, of Dhamma, in terms of nature, rather than taking it personally, then that makes it easier <laughs> to let go of the unwholesome yeah, and to, not to out of suppression or fear or aversion or, or repression, but just, oh, that's going to lead to a painful result, let it go, just don't pick it up. This is going to lead to a beneficial result, this is going to be helpful, pick it up, follow, follow that, support it. So that then... The, the basis of, of the practice is an attunement to, to Dhamma, uh, to, to nature, and the, um, you're not uh, feeding those, those negative or destructive aspects of, of this life by fear and suppression and, and uh, rejection. Because if you, uh, if you want to push things away or want to wipe things out, or like I was quoting Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, you know, if, if only all evil was just confined to one particular group and then we could wipe out that group of people and then all evil would be gone. But the line between good and evil is a, uh, is a line that goes down the middle of every human heart. So that it's, um, I feel, a very insightful way of describing things. And that uh, if, we, if we see that, yeah, we're, these bodies, these minds, they're capable of generating the, the wholesome, the unwholesome, the neutral... And that uh, spiritual practice, this training we have, is, is uh, helping us to see uh, those are all part of the natural order, <laughs> but they have different uh, effects. There's different results uh, that follow with, with those different qualities. And that we learn to make those choices, the, to, 
recognize the unwholesome and restrain it, to, to, if it's arisen, to let it go, to cultivate the wholesome, and if it's arisen, to maintain it in being. And then we see the results of, of those, those choices, and that, that uh, the positive, beneficial, liberating quality of those results is, is exactly what, what guides us in terms of what was going to be helpful, action and speech and, and, and attitude. Any final comments, questions, thoughts? Gaspar. Thank you, Ajahn. Well, I just wanted to use this opportunity to express my gratitude for all uh, these sessions. Uh, it's been an amazing privilege um, to participate in these readings in addition to other teaching activities. Uh, I've learned a lot, um, definitely super useful. Um, yeah, and thank you again for, for your diligent <laughs> um, offering of, of, uh, of all these considerations and for the opportunity to ask questions. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. My pleasure. So uh, we managed to, uh, that was the second to last talk in the book, The Way It Is. There's one more that we didn't get to, but we did through this winter retreat. We pretty much did the whole of the book the way it is. The last one is a time to, a time to love, so there's no time to love. <laughs> Not enough time for a time to love, but uh, that's the way it is. Pun intended. So any last comments, thoughts, reflections? Yes, sister. You could use the microphone. Thank you, Ajahn. I'm asking a different question away from the opaca. And uh, how to cultivate uh, the parame of determination so that when we face a difficulty, we won't always, the mind won't wobble. We always say, okay, we make a commitment to the holy life and we are going to stick with it. So aditana is the Pali word for determination, resolution. Um, well, I, th I think you're in the right place if you want to, to cultivate uh, resolution. Um, it, it's like a, a, uh, it, it's a... It's a quality that needs to be informed by wisdom. You can make stupid determinations that are sort of unrealistic, that sort of... Uh, you make resolutions that are sort of beyond your human capacity or are going to cause conflict or difficulty with, between you and the people around you. So the, the resolutions that we make need to be skillfully considered and thought through. But um, the, the quality of Aditana, it, it's interesting that um, uh, we, the other day we were mentioning the Gosinga Sutta, the, 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 this beautiful moonlit night in the forest um, when the, the various... Uh, enlightened terrors uh, gathered together and uh, talked about what kind of a, of a monk would illuminate the forest on a beautiful night. And then each one of them talks about their own particular speciality, so that uh, Venerable Ananda talks about one who's heard the teachings and remembered all the teachings. Um, uh, Mahamogalana talks about one who's developed all the psychic powers. Mahakasapa talks about one who uh, practices all the dutangas. And I think uh, Venerable Revata talks about one who's uh, uh, thoroughly uh, accomplished in a meditation. Anyway, the, at the end of that sutta, they go to see, well, let's go, they, they decide, let's go to see the master and ask the, uh, the Blessed One what, what he would say to this question. And it's one of the few places where the Buddha, in a sense, talks about his own character. So each one of them in that sutta has, has quite kind of charmingly describe their own particular strong suit, their own, uh, their own major theme of their own practice or what they're most known for. And so when they ask the Buddha, what kind of a monk do you think would illuminate the forest on a night like this? In the same theme, he talks about what's, what's most important for him and he talks about resolution, determination. He says, the kind of monk who would sit down uh, and say, I will not move from this spot. Uh, my, my bones can turn to dust, my blood can dry up, but I will not move from this spot until full and complete enlightenment has been realized. 
So when he uh, referring to his own character, he points to aditana, a resolution, which is kind of interesting. Um, that's what he, of all the many, many, many things he could have referred to in, in his extraordinary spiritual attributes. In that context, that's what he he names. So I, I do feel that's significant. And if you think of the career of a bodhisattva, then it's a lot around resolutions, like. I've made this determination, I'm going to stick with it, and no matter how many ups and downs, or how difficult, or how challenging, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, to waver from my commitment. Though, it's like any kind of, of strength, you can't develop that strength just by having an idea about it. It's like if you wanted to be, uh, to be fit, um, uh, and you say, I'd like to be strong enough to walk for, for 15 or 20 miles in a day. You can't just sit in your room and think that and have it happen. You can't read a book about it. No, you've got to get on your feet and go and develop those strengths because it, just won't, it can't happen without that. So in exactly the same way, aditana, resolution, is, is developed by those kind of tests, testing yourself and, and being patient, being being resolute in in many and various ways. So you know, we we take so resolutions to um, that within the scope of what's possible in the, the monastic life. Like uh, I will get up as soon as I wake up every morning, or I will um, uh, yeah, I will uh, uh, do uh, do my best to be uh, to be on time for every meditation. Uh, meditation sitting, you know, I, I uh, uh, and so that you, you you then put things that are quite wholesome, quite uh, skillful, um, put them in place, and then take it seriously. You know, the the, the negative side of aditana is you can turn yourself into a neurotic wreck, and just be worried or self-critical that you that you only made it 364 days, you made it to the, med- the morning meditation in time and. One day you didn't make it. Oh, what a terrible person! I failed. I broke my aditana, and so the negative side of that. So that's why aditana has to be developed with a strong, a strong element of, of wisdom, uh, panya, involved as well. But uh, it, it's a uh, uh, the the way that that resolution is developed is through it being tested by feeling lazy or. Um, or I can't be bothered, or, or you know, what about you? Know, what about me? Or you know, not today? <laughs> and so, it's, it's not like you're looking for trouble, or you're asking, you're wanting to cause yourself pain. But it's like developing physical fitness. You know that you you will only get fit if you put in the miles. It won't happen any other way. And so, developing resolution, aditana, it's like it won't develop unless it's tested by the feelings of greediness or laziness or selfishness or fear or desire and, and then learning to to um, to work with that. So and, and in, in in lay life, you know, the say commitment to your job, you know, you you've got a contract, you're supposed to show up on time for work, a certain uh, amount of work you're supposed to do, or you're supposed to uh, put your heart into the, the work you're doing. Or or marriage, you know, that you're making it a commitment to another person and being uh, being faithful to that that relationship, um, and that you know you might be attracted to other people, but you know I'm, I'm married. I, I'm, I'm you know that person's attractive, but I'm not married to that person. So no, this is it's not it's not in the in the scope. Or that you with with uh, the working world, it's like yeah I've got a job and it's my part of my contract, but I can't be bothered to go to work today. I'll, I'll pull a sickie, as they say. And just, so then, th- those are the temptations or the the kind of impulses, you know, greed or laziness and um, fear, desire, and so on. And then developing aditana is to that capacity to say no. That uh, not out of aversion or 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 anxiety, but just no. I've made this resolution. I, I feel this is a skillful thing to do. I'm going to be uh, faithful to my commitments. To, to be sincere and uh, 
so that then there's a strength that's being developed without and again like with most aspects of the practice practice it it works best with as little self-view as possible but yeah I should be this way I shouldn't be that way I promised I would and, I, uh, and I'm a terrible person because I haven't you know the more selfing that happens around it then the more obstructive and destructive those things get so um, so sometimes uh, an Ajahn will, you know, if someone wants to take on some kind of a practice or they've made a resolution and the Ajahn will say, no, don't do that. <laughs> it's like, no. And that's part of the reason that in, in our training and Ajahn Chah would, uh, would always encourage that for junior people um, that they would have to have permission from the Ajahn if they took on some kind of particular practice. Yeah, as a, as a special uh, ascetic practice or as an Aditana so that you get a bit of feedback as to whether it's practical or doable or whether you're going to or how your mind is handling it so that um, it, the, the less self-view there is involved and the more there is a it's coming from a, a, a very sort of skillful and noble motivation you know, really based in Dhamma then, then uh, those tests do genuinely develop strength so that when the Buddha said I'm going to uh, I'm going to sit down under this tree and, and my bones can turn to dust and my blood can dry up and I'm not going to move. He also knew that he was a person of ex exceptional paramita. And he just had the five significant dreams that foretold that he was on the verge of realizing full and complete enlightenment or that there were these very powerful symbolic dreams that he had had. And, um, and he knew that he was a really accomplished meditator because of the... the feedback, the praise he got from Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta. So it wasn't a vain, uh, an un unfounded aspiration. It had a basis. Uh, in one of Lumpur Sumedho's Dhamma talks, he said that uh, you know, he was in one monastery where the, this, uh, a monk had made that same kind of aditana, I'm going to go into this kuti, I'm not going to come out of this kuti until I've reached full and complete enlightenment. And he went crazy. You know, he literally had to sort of was carted out and taken to the mental hospital because of, there wasn't the foundation, there wasn't the, the basis. They had the, the kind of aspiration, the interest to, to realize full and complete enlightenment, but the, the, the backup wasn't there, the, the, the paramita was not developed sufficiently. So, uh, uh, so that uh, Lumpur Sumedha would put, he was very good at ma making these things <laughs> very simple and straightforward. Don't make Superman or Wonder Woman resolutions if you're not Wonder Woman. It's like, you know, measure what you're capable of. You know, if you're not an Olympic grade athlete, don't don't set yourself Olympic standards, you know. Be be discerning and, and, and look at what's what you're capable of and and yeah, so you develop that kind of, that kind of resolution and, and strength through stretching yourself, through testing and and um, but that uh, if if it coming if it's coming from a an uh, an in intuitive and wise motivation rather than just some kind of a, a, a inspired idea or you know, wow, wow, this is amazing, this is incredible, look what this monk did and I'm going to do that too and then you go crazy you know, or, you, or you, you feel like you're such a failure oh, I can't do it, I'm such a, an idiot and then you, um, you, you, know, you talk with your friends and you realize that you you set a totally absurd standard for yourself. It's like completely impossible to 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 reach that. Um, then uh, you you, uh, you realize, oh, well, I was asking too much of myself. That was really impractical and impossible. So uh, so getting uh, feedback from a teacher or, or just drawing on your own intuitive wisdom is actually part of uh, of the the basis of of Lumpur Chah's training was similarly when he had the dialogue with, with Lumpur Man and he'd been reading the Visuddhimagga and he was, he was a, he'd been a monk about six or seven years, seven or eight years and he was really sincere and trying to practice in, a, in as good a way as he, as, as he could and he, when he spoke to Lumpur Man you know, he said, 
I've, I've studied the, the Visuddhi Magga and this is more than what a human being can do. You know, I, I'm really, you know, I've really put my heart into this, but you can't live this way. This is, these, this is too demanding. You know, no human being can, can do this. You know, I, I realize I'm, you know, there are other people who are more sort of competent or skilled than me, but he said, you know, I've really put my heart and, and full-scale full effort into this. You, you can't live this way, it's impossible. And then apparently Lumpur uh, Man said, um, all, you, you have to bear in mind, all of this came from, from one mind, all of this came from the mind, just bring it back to your mind. And use the, the standards of Hiri and Otapa as your measure. And so that the, um, that, basically keep it simple. <laughs> the, uh, that, um, yeah, Ajahn Chah was, was focusing on all of the detail, particularly in the sila um, and the samadhi sections, I think, uh, of the Visuddhi Magga. And, uh, and so trying to follow all of those standards, you just, you know, it's like physically impossible. And so the, the advice from, from the teacher was just bring it back to your own intuitive sense. And so then, so I feel that, uh, that kind of self-inquiry as well as getting the inquiry from your companions in the holy life, saying, I'm thinking of making this resolution, or I really want to develop more, uh, more commitment around X, Y, or Z. You know, what do you think? <laughs> and get the feedback from your friends and see what they say. Okay, so I think that's enough. <laughs>